I'm Sophie Thomas, and you're listening to the final episode of Women Are The Business. Throughout this series, we've talked about women's lives, both at home and in the office. In today's episode, we're going global and talking to two experts who work with women in the developing world. Women in developing nations face many of the same challenges as women in the West, as well as some that are uniquely their own. We're going to look at the numbers and the research and find out why it's important to acknowledge the diverse experience of women around the world. My name is Sarah Boyd, and at the moment I'm the Director of Advocacy at Data2x. As an undergraduate at the University of Melbourne, Sarah studied commerce, focusing on economics and international trade. The story really starts when I was in high school and I had the opportunity to go on a study tour of China uh, to Beijing and a few other cities with my Chinese language class in 1995. And that really opened my eyes to, I guess, the, the world outside our borders and, uh, and really opened, I guess, an interest for me in diplomacy and in understanding how other societies and economies in our region were, uh, were working. I studied economics in, in high school because a, a very friendly teacher suggested that I might be interested. And at that point, studying commerce and arts initially with Chinese language, I guess as a way to explore my curiosity in understanding the world outside Australia. And that seemed to be the best way to explore as a framework for, for understanding how the world works. After completing a Master of International Development, Sarah went on to work in a range of diplomatic roles, including time spent with AusAid, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, and Oxfam. Now, her role at Data2x is about sharing the insights that come from gender research and making sure this data is accessible. If we're talking about policymaking uh, from a government perspective, or if we're talking about advocating for policy change from, from a civil society perspective, those endeavours are really most effective when they're, when they're building on evidence. So if we're talking about the experience of, of a particular woman in, in India or, or Venezuela, the, the kind of data and evidence that we have on women's experience, lived experience, which often comes from women's rights organisations and civil society organisations, that will help guide that policy making. Gender has been a focal point for your career. Is that something that you always had an interest in through your working life? I came to see clearly as I continued my study in more of the traditional economics uh, and then in my development studies uh, work that gender began to be an essential lens through which to understand economic, social, political dynamics. And I think as I began to work more in, especially in South Asia and Southeast Asia, I began to, to see and, and study and observe not just the, I guess, often disproportionate impact of, say, conflict and humanitarian uh, crises, but also just how powerful women's roles were in, in organising and civil society and, and the different the different kind of impact they had when they had access to, to power and making decisions. Increasingly, that became a centre of my work when I realised that, especially in, an, in any development context and certainly looking at issues of, of peace and conflict, you can't understand those contexts without considering the questions of gender. I'm wondering, from your own personal experience, what you think the biggest roadblocks are to true gender equality that the world is facing? 
two things really jump out and and that firstly is around violence against women which is an issue in in every single country to different extents and a related issue to ending violence against women is around having more women in uh, in public and political life at every level and those two issues i think are are critically related violence can be a preventive for women to uh, to run for public office and stay in public office and also having more women at every and a diverse set of women in public office at every level enables different kinds of policy making our next guest is a researcher who can show us why evidence is so important and how data can be used to help more women stay at work in the developing world I'm Diana Contreras-Suarez. I'm a research fellow at the Melbourne Institute for Applied Economics and Social Research. I do development economics. And what that basically means is I like using statistic tools to look at uh, problems that affect people in disadvantage, mainly in developing countries. I grew up in Bogota, in Colombia. While I was over there, I used to uh, witness so much poverty and disadvantage, and I always got very interested about why, why it's causing type of problem, and I always wanted to work on ways of finding a solution for it. Can you run us through how women's working lives in developing countries might be similar or different to the working lives of women in uh, already developed countries? So there are differences in the way uh, women maybe need to work. Um, So if you think of a developing economy, uh, if you are very poor, you need to work because you need to eat. So therefore, it's you can think of this as a survival type of employment. Once you move to the other uh, end of the spectrum where you have developed uh, countries where women uh, could have more flexibility of choosing if they want to work or not. In both cases, they are going to face different challenges. But something that is common in developing or developed countries is the fact that childbearing always affects women. So this is common, and maybe the magnitude of the effect, it's higher in in some places than others, but this is constant all over the world. As we've seen throughout this series, having a child is often the big moment where the inequalities between men and women widen significantly. To find out how childbirth affects women working in developing nations, Deanna looked at data from Indonesia. So when I finished my PhD, we um, I got a job and then part of that job was uh, to do some research in collaboration with an agency which is funded by the Australian uh, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade in Indonesia. And what they wanted to do was to look at what was the situation of women or gender inequality in Indonesia. So we were looking at different domains, and one of them was what was their situation in the labor market. So this project started from that, and my interest from it was understanding how this is a big issue in many countries where women have been improving their education levels, women have been improving their um, health status, and still there are inequalities in those areas. The one that we were uh, seeing more differentials was in the labor force participation. And it was interesting that Indonesia has been a country that has been growing so rapidly in the last 30 years. And it was very puzzling the fact that we didn't see that change be reflected in the way women were benefiting from it in terms of labor market participation. 
So as a result of that, we were studying what were the drivers of, of this kind of uh, stagnant female labor force participation. Once we have information of women and we are able to track them over their life cycles, we can estimate what's the proportion of those women who are living or what happened with them when they have the first child. And what we found was very surprising that most of those women were actually just leaving the labor market altogether. If you think of this, this evidence, you can think of it's maybe that provision of childcare would help women to come back to work or uh, other facilities who help them to take care of kids. And what would be the benefits to Indonesia if more women did work? A very direct effect is if you have more people who are very well skilled and well trained contributing to their economy, you can, you can think that productivity will increase and therefore growth of the country will increase and that would benefit their, the economy. You also can think of an indirect effect, which is if more women are able to participate in the labor market or to stay in their jobs when they want to, there is research that has shown that female participation increases their bargaining power within their households and that also has positive effects on their children. Can you talk us through some of the potential policy solutions that you have identified? So we have been thinking um, that one of the main uh, solutions that could be beneficial is allowing women to work flexible flexible time. Uh, you can think of flexibility in terms of starting shifts at different times, so then it accommodates better to when they need to drop off kids at school or these kind of events. Or you can think of part-time where women only work for three, three days a week or whatever, in a way that also that they will receive all the benefits from a full-time employment. So they will have health, access to healthcare and all the other benefits. Another way uh, that we have thought that it could be worth trying is providing mentoring programs where women who are returning to, to work are paired up with other women who have kids and who are still working. Uh, so then they can share kind of their experiences of what is to manage having a family at home and also um, the challenges of being back at work. There are other other programs that we are also considering, which is uh, retention bonuses or incentives for women to return to employment once they have the children, so then they come back. And we need to also consider that these kind of changes have to be accompanied by other social and cultural changes. And this is more difficult to regulate. You cannot impose a policy of how households within them uh, are supposed to share the housework. And this is a problem that is faced not in Indonesia, but all around all around the world because women work at their jobs and also they work at their homes. And it's just too much. Sarah, I'm wondering what you think the role is of developed countries when it comes to getting involved in helping or providing aid to developing countries. I guess there are a number of components to this. And what I would say is the, the evidence is increasingly clear that one of the most effective ways that partners, be they governments or private foundations or philanthropists or uh, civil society organizations, supporting the grassroots work of women's rights organizations and women's rights networks and human rights defenders uh, is often 
one of the most effective ways to, I guess, support the the local or indigenous work that is happening. Um, and now that, of course, is is not a homogenous thing. What what a feminist movement or a women's rights movement looks like in one country is, uh, you know, can look like many things. The second thing I would say is that one really important role that donor governments like Australia play and can play is helping in translate, help, sorry, helping to translate those commitments to um, to other countries. So, for instance, one of the ways that that a number of donors might support that is is helping to build up what's called the gender machineries, which is a, a, it seems to be a funny term, but for instance, the gender equality ministries or departments in governments. So most of this works through the aid programs. And as far as I understand, the way Australia has decided to pursue their aid to developing countries is, in particular to Indonesia, is to provide them instead of infrastructure, which they did in the past very strongly. Now it's to provide them with technical support in a way that will help them tackle the problems that they are interested in tackling. Um, so instead of this type of aid where you would have like, you know, this paternalistic view where one country goes to another one and tells them, oh, this is what you should do. It's more um, a more collaborative way where they really want to provide assistance in what they want to tackle. And if you think in a, like from a altruistic point of view, it's it's part of the responsibility of making sure that our neighboring countries are well off. And that's not only good for them, but it's also at the end good for Australia as well, mm. uh, that they prosper and they flourish. And everyone within the country is also able to flourish in their capacities and in the ways they want to participate. What about individual action? So say some a woman heard this podcast and they thought, you know, you know, I actually would like to get involved somehow in helping women in developing countries. Well, I think that there are very different ways that individuals can work on these areas. Uh, let's say my way of helping in this area is through my research, but way that is more close to the public is you can think of many organizations that are willing to contribute and study and uh, do advocacy uh, for these type of problems, which In many instances, it's not that people don't want to change or they don't care. It's just people don't know or people don't know what they can do. And because it's in human nature to be reluctant to change, uh, it just takes a lot of a lot of effort and, and these, these things take, take time. So if people want to promote women and fairness in the way they can access opportunities from economies, I think it it creates um it is a great opportunity to to be able to join organizations who are willing to advocate for these causes having said that i think those organizations also require to have clear evidence that whatever they are advocating for actually works and actually it's for the benefit of those women because there are there is evidence of many programs that they have very good intentions But in reality and in practice, they have very harming consequences for the women they are trying to help. You can participate in those uh, in those uh, organizations, but also to be a little bit uh, critical on what are the actions that their organizations are supporting. When it comes to achieving true gender equality, we need to remember that developed nations also have a long way to go. The idea that we've achieved equality, we know is not 
true because we know that women are dying at the hands of their intimate partners every week in Australia. Uh, We know about issues in the economic sphere around the gender pay gap. We know about so many issues across social, political, economic life where we have these big gaps and we still have a lot of work to do. And I think if we if we take a let's say an intersectional lens and think about if we're looking in Australia uh, or if we're looking um, in other lower and uh, middle income countries, uh, and you will always find a I guess a diversity of experience, big really big factors, the impact of of conflict and, and displacement that results from climate change from conflict and and humanitarian emergencies when we're talking about tens of millions of people worldwide every year and that experience is disproportionately borne by women. These are big global questions and as we've learned over the last season of Women Are The Business, there aren't really any easy answers. Where we might find a glimmer of hope and a chance to make a more equal world for everyone is by listening to the numbers, to the facts, to the experts, and of course, to each other. Thank you to today's guests, Sarah Boyd and Dr. Deanna Contreras Suarez, and to all our guests throughout the season. And thank you to you, our listeners. To catch up on our previous episodes or see more content from the Women of the Business series, you can head to our website, fbe.unimelb.edu.au forward slash women are the business. We hope you've enjoyed the show and maybe even taken away a few nuggets of expert advice to apply in your own life. Women are the business is recorded on Rwandri land at the University of Melbourne. The podcast is produced by Seth Robinson, James Whitmore and me, Sophie Thomas. It's recorded by Chris Hutzis and edited and mixed by Audiocraft's Camilla Hannan. The theme music comes from Epidemic Sounds.